most organizations just have a a number that is the salary or a range that is a salary for a particular job class or type of position. And what I talk about is we don't really know what goes into that number and taking it apart, reverse engineering that whole number and kind of taking it apart, looking at the pieces that are going into potential pieces, potential compensation factors, and say, of these factors, what are the ones that are really meaningful to us that we really want to recognize and lift up? How do we look at it from an equity lens? Which of these factors have uh, kind of embedded in them inequity? Because for example, I think education is a good example. Education is not accessible for everyone. And if someone can do the job without a particular level of education, why put that level of education as a barrier? That's probably one of the most uh, common ones that people cite. My guest today on Mission Impact is Mala Nagaranjan. Mala and I talk about how to build an equitable compensation system for your organization. And this conversation was so amazing. We talked about the difference between a living wage and a thriving wage, how to identify compensation factors, and then agree within the organization how, what you're going to do to value them, as well as key conversations organizations need to have about how they're thinking about compensation such as whether to bring in market factors or geography, or rather, to what extent do you want to consider them? And how are you recognizing emotional labor? What is it? How is it showing up in your organization? And then how you value it? And not just lip service to valuing it, but really building it in to how and what people are paid. This blew my mind. I so appreciated Mala's innovative approach to this important topic. And one topic that we only lightly grazed over, and then I may have to ask her back to talk more about, was how our own money stories, as well as the historical trauma around money for those in marginalized communities, shows up in these conversations too. Mission Impact is the podcast for nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategy consultant. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting brings you whole brain strategy consulting for nonprofits and associations. We help you move your mission forward, engage all voices, and have fun while doing it. We combine left brain strategy and analysis with right brain wisdom about human complexities for a proven whole brain, whole organization process through which every stakeholder thrives. Reach out to us for support and facilitation of strategic planning, mapping your social impact, as well as auditing your services for mission alignment. We especially love working with staffed nonprofits and associations with human-centered missions. Well, welcome, Mala. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So I always like to start each conversation with uh, just asking each guest, what drew you to the work that you do? What what would you say motivates you or what, how would you describe your why? Yeah. Um, I think I've been drawn to HR since my first job, or at least improving the workplace. So I can remember getting involved in uh, for my first job in how to make the workplace more um amenable for everybody and uh, welcoming. And um, and then I think the another piece that's been a driving force in my why is uh, my mom, who uh, never held a paid W-2 job, but was often, was a volunteer at a local library. And the immense um, confidence it gave her to be able to do some work and put books in alphabetical order, or she'd come to one of my jobs and um, help uh, scan or copy newspapers. And just people feeling valuable and valued in the workplace uh, and how meaningful it is just uh, is so core. If, if it just feels like um, we get so much meaning out of what we're doing, what we're, how we're able to support. Um, others. 
Well, one of the things that you do, I think probably the main thing that you do is help organizations create more equitable compensation models for their staff. And that's really the most tangible way in a lot of ways that organizations value people. So it goes to that core that you're talking about. What would you say are some of the the principles that undergird that work? Um, yeah, uh, I think that some of the principles that undergird uh, the specific framework and model that I'm working on, um, it starts with... Uh, uh, being values based, so I'm uh, trying to create a uh, structure, a compensation structure that is relational, so that uh, typically in kind of the for-profit capitalist uh, structure, uh, our pay is very individualistic. We negotiate, and we don't know anybody else's pay, uh, and so what. I'm trying to adopt as a more relational uh, uh, one where uh, with nonprofits, they only have a certain amount of budget. They may be able to grow their budget. They may not be able to, but how do we be uh, have our compensation be in relationship to each other so that it's not, so that there's equity. Um, it doesn't have to be the same, but people want to have some transparency in what, uh, what our salary looks like. Um, it also tries to, the structure or the framework that I use uh, tries to um, embody interdependence and kind of the interdependence of our work itself. So it's very customizable and organizations can customize what they're valuing specifically based on the type of work that they're doing, the communities that they're serving and really link the communities and the impact they're trying to have all the way to their staff. So how do you uh, really value um, the types of ways that staff are connected with the communities that you're serving? So you talk about it being relational. Can you, can you give me an example of what that might look like? Yeah. Um, the, I, my work in this aspect really draws from some work that my colleagues at the roadmap uh, roadmap, uh, social justice consulting uh, network created, and this is like my uh, Lisa Weiner Malthus, Margie Clark, Rita Sever, uh, Brigitte Roussan. Um, Margie, in particular, had created a wage survey that was uh, it was a, ro- a collaboration between Roadmap, uh, the National Organizers Alliance, and the Data Center. And uh, they surveyed over 250 non- um, social justice nonprofits. And what they found was that there was an average, uh, somewhere between a two to three, um, sorry, the, there was a relationship between the lowest and the highest paid person in the organization. So when you keep those in relationship, there's something about the highest salary can't go up until the lowest also goes up, right? And when you're in that type of relationship, you know that um, whatever you're doing to your salary is also benefiting other people. Um, so uh, the typical lowest sal- the ratio, typical ratio between the lowest salary and the highest salary was somewhere around uh, 2.2 to 3.3 times um, where the highest salary was two to three times the lowest salary. Uh, and um, there's other ways that it can be relational. I know one of the clients that I work with, uh, if somebody does negotiate a higher salary, they apply that negotiation to everybody at the same level. So it really kind of uh, shows that we're all, we're impacting each other, not just ourselves. So I guess that, that goes to that interdependence that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And you also use the word transparency, which I feel like people use all the time and about all the things. So can you say a little bit more about what that might look like in in an instance like this? Yeah, um, I talk about transparency in uh, kind of most organizations just have a a number that is the salary or a range that is a um, salary for a particular uh, job class or um, uh, type of position. And what I talk about is taking this kind of 
We don't really know what goes into that number and taking it apart, reverse engineering that whole number and kind of taking it apart, looking at the pieces that are going in to potential pieces, potential compensation factors, and say, of these factors, what are the ones that are really meaningful to us that we really want to recognize and lift up? Um, how do we uh, look at it from an equity lens? Which of these factors are um, have uh, kind of embedded in them inequity? Because for example, I think education is a good example. Education is not accessible by for everyone. And if someone can do the job without a particular level of education, why put that level of education as a barrier, right? Um, so I think that's probably one of the most uh, common ones that people cite. But uh, then we, you know, we let organizations really identify what are the ones that are, what are the compensation factors that are values aligned? And then let's re-engineer that into the salary so people know what it's made up of. So at the very least, it's about we know what's in the salary, but we know what makes it, makes up, we know what makes up the salary. Um, second, we know what the process is to, to, uh, for the different aspects of compensation and, um, you know, in the very clearest or trans most transparent organizations, everybody's salary is known. So one of the things that struck me when I was reading about the framework that you work with was, was uh, those compensation factors that you're talking about and how um, <clears throat> some of the ones were you know, I think a lot of uh, folks who work do this kind of work are familiar with in terms of, you know, what are the skills that are needed? What are the competencies? What's the education, as you were talking about? Um, but you were also, in, in the description, um, recognizing other kinds of labor, such as, you know, well, physical labor, people might already recognize that, but, but more in terms of emotional labor. Um, and I don't think that's typically been... Um, valued, recognized, uh, and certainly not compensated um, in, in many ways. So how, just at first, how do you define emotional labor? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it's really sticky for a lot of people because it's like, how do you define it? It's just, you know, people being emotional or allowing emotion to be part of our workspace so that we're actually more whole. It's not just logical and rational, but also emotional. Um, we draw from um, uh, the definition of the sociological definition of emotional labor. So uh, labor that the position itself requires um, where uh, the circumstances that the position, a position is uh, required to be in uh, may, uh, may bring up emotions that the person in the position needs to put aside and respond in a different way. Um, this could be care work, you know, um, uh, it could be, it's often associated with customer service, but it could be care work where people are like dealing with logistics for a conference and they're basically at, ser you know, the s serving people to make sure they can get and enjoy the conference in the fullest manner that they can, right? Um, it could be uh, folks who are dealing with crises. Uh, I think the typical example given in the sociology books are um, a, a police officer dealing with a crisis, but it really in a nonprofit um, uh, uh, organization, it can be the vicarious trauma that people are dealing with as they're uh, serving direct, uh, serving community with you know crisis management. Um, or if they're working on um, direct action and they're on the streets and they're having to deal with police, right? Or they're having to deal with uh, um, opposition, you know, folks um, in the mix, making sure that everybody's safe, right? There's lots of different ways that one's emotions in the position based on the role that you have to serve might elicit other emotions and stress and stuff like that, but that, uh, part of your job is actually to manage that. It's interesting that your very first example um, around, uh, you know, just 
dealing with the logistics of a conference, which, you know, a situation I've been in a lot of times, and I don't know that I ever thought of it as care work. You know, I thought when I hear that care work, I think, you know, someone taking care of a, my, the people taking care of my disabled brother, the people who took care of my dad as he as he was, um, you know, fa- his his health was failing uh, before he died. You know, child care. Those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. But when you when you put it in that frame, there's like there's so much more that is actually care work. Can you yeah. give me other examples of what that might be? Yeah, um, there's uh, one of the organizations I worked with, uh, they were the ones who actually defined this kind of logistical role as care work because they really uh, expect that person in that logistical role to make it it the smoothest experience for the, uh, for the participant as possible because they're dealing with member organizations. Another way that they redefined uh, or, or, or split that apart, actually, emotional labor. They also created one that was around conflict management um, and your relationship to conflict. And uh, because they're working with lots of grassroots organizations, all, their, all the people on staff at default, they have to be able to recognize when there's conflict between member organizations or, or member representatives or um, so they need to be able to recognize and be aware of that conflict. And then they're, they may not be the ones to, uh, to, to address it, but they have to flag it and, and run it up to the next person, right? And then the uh, next person assesses the conflict to see what, you know, what level of conflict is it. And they had different levels of people addressing conflict. So the very highest level was someone who was helping mediate the emotional intensity of the conflict itself um, and actually being a mediator, negotiator, um, uh, supporting uh, both or many parties to come to resolution. And and what a great way to recognize that labor that people are doing and also see it across the organization, across all the different positions. And at the very least, one of the things that we include in our, our framework is a level zero, which is everybody's responsibility in every single area of responsibility that's or compensation factor that's um, identified. Uh, There's a level zero, which is basically uh, what is the basics that are required by everybody Mm. Um, for conflict resolution. It's knowing what my own conflict style is Mm. or the tendency that I have. It's um, knowing what are the things that trigger me. Um, It is knowing, um, how to, what different kinds of conflict there are, like recognizing that um, disagreement does not equal abuse, right? And, and uh, uh, conflict does not equal abuse, like actually recognizing that um, different manifestations that sometimes get uh, confused as conflict, but are different things. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about um, it being values aligned, relational, transparent, and interdependent. Are there other principles that go into the the framework? Um, I, I want to expand on the interdependent because sure. I feel like that's super important. Um, we don't recognize how our our work is interdependent, um, and uh, this model tries to again embody that. So people, so let's say communications is an area of responsibility that the organization wants to uh, recognize, a function, the functional aspect of communications. Um, You can have program folks and fundraising folks all have scores in communication because the program folks are feeding the information to communications so that the, and um, uh, crafting the story, right, like really bringing the stories from the community that the communications folks will be then disseminating. The fundraising folks need to also uh, intersect with the communications um, function of the organization to make sure that the fundraising aspects of the communication are are, um, uh, identified and, you know, that there's opportunity uh, put in. So we're really looking at how's the work, how are people collaborating with each other, working together to actually see uh, uh, see some aspect forward like and really understanding how the uh, different components um, different 
people in different positions are interacting with um, communications or uh, if you're um, if you're a program person or you're a um, front desk person and someone comes into the office and you want to make sure that they're in the database in the CRM so that communications folks and fundraising folks can have access to that data, that's part of your contribution. Um, so those are ways that we're really kind of putting it into the compensation system rather than just isolating it in a job description as one person's you know, task to do. Well, and it's funny because I feel like so often organizations are complaining about um, or, or struggling with feeling siloed. And so it sounds like through that process, you're actually mapping a lot of the interdependence that they may not even be recognizing is there and the collaboration that is happening um, and kind of making it visible in a way that might have might not have been. Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful process when people are seeing it. And, and I think it really helps people um, step up and own their work. Yeah, yeah. So can you describe the process that you go through, you walk organizations through? Uh, that's a really good question. So we've been in constant development of okay. our process. <laughs> so um, in the beginning, about three or four years ago, it was just me and the person who had the HR function. And uh, what I was proposing was just an HR intervention. Mm. We, we didn't really have staff involved. It wasn't like a collective process. It was like, okay, let's map out the, you know, how work is happening and what might be um, uh, just to get folks started. And the basic um, structure of the uh, compensation or the basic components of the compensation structure are there's a base salary and the base salary is not position oriented. So the base salary is actually everyone from the ED to the uh, entry level person getting the exact same base salary. And then from that, the areas of responsibility that you're holding will get um, added to that base. Um, and so we started that with the very first organization that we were working with. But um, over time in the last two years, we've really shifted to a more organizational change process. What we noticed in the, even though the, uh, there was a good response to the um, compensation structure when staff uh, were you know, uh, engaging with it, um, there was a, still a sense of people moving in the system individually. Mm. In a, um, so, oh, like, how do I get to the next highest level pay versus um, what's my best strength or what are my um, dependable strengths? What are the things that I can um, that I want to increase my level of competency in? And uh, how does that map in the system and how can I move both? Um, if I have, I might have financial goals and monetary goals, and that's great, but it's not just about that. It's also about what are you really, uh, what are you strong at and how can the organization and you be in alignment so that you're able to use your aptitudes and your strengths um, and not just have to become a supervisor in order to get more money, because we know not everybody is made out to be a supervisor. And that we know a few people are made out to be a supervisor. <laughs> yeah. And, and we know, like, we know that, you know, from the Gallup poll, your manager is the most important person in, in your workspace and, like, you know, contributes to your em employee engagement, right? Like, that, um, let's not put someone who's not really uh, doesn't have that skill set in that position just so that they can get a raise. Or doesn't want to develop it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have the interest in, in developing exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, certainly there's a huge challenge with um, having people access management training in the sector. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I should finish the, the story is like HR intervention. Now we're doing like more of a organizational change process and um, we're continuing to develop that. So I think uh we're getting a little bit more uh, nuanced about one of the things I'm looking forward to this next year is really helping people to get to those critical discussions that we never have in the workplace. Mm. And my colleague, Rochelle Faithful, is going to be um, completing a 
uh, discussion guide for organizations where they can really interface based on this process that we use and then have critical discussions um, about, you know, do we want to follow market? Uh, uh, do we want to like com compete with the market or do we want to make sure our internal salaries are um, equitable in relationship to each other? And it's not an either or question because we actually need to do both. So what are what are some other examples of those critical conversations that organizations need to have? Yeah. Um, am I working for money? Uh, it, oh, am I is it, is it a work to am I working to live or living to work? Right. Like what are the individual values that we're coming in to the workplace with and what are the values of the organization that are different than ours and how do we actually navigate different people's value systems within a workplace. So I, I think the easiest example of this also is, you know, what does the workplace mean to us? It's so different based on generational differences and how, what events in, um, our, in our lifetime have affected uh, attitudes around work, right? And so uh, we're really encouraging folks to come up with an employer philosophy that kind of sets down um, here's where we want to walk the line in terms of our workplace. And so you might come from a different generation or a different um, culture where work means something different. And this is how we're bringing people together um, around work and what it means to be an employee in this organization. Yeah, I feel like that question is definitely very alive right now. Um, been having conversations with lots of different people about kind of uh, them renegotiating their relationship to work and what it means in their life. And, um, and yeah, there's so many cultural assumptions that come with that. Uh, you know, certainly the ones that I inherited were, um, work is very central to your life. <laughs> so I'm trying to like disentangle a little bit from that. Um, but I, I love the idea of, uh, as an organization being really clear, about and not just having it be, you know, we're we're adopting these cultural assumptions about what it means to be a quote good employee or, you know, to show up well here in this in this space. Yeah. Yeah. So um can you say a little bit more? I think most organizations are used to, uh, if they if they do any work around compensation, thinking about it from a market-based point of view. What are some pitfalls that are kind of embedded in that kind of standard approach? Um, I think uh, one of my collaborators, uh, um, Sharon Davis, just introduced me recently to Marilyn uh, Marilyn Wanny, uh, Waring's work. She's a New Zealand, uh, used to be a New Zealand uh, parliamentarian. Um, and some work of hers in, in the 70s, she really talked about how the GDP is like not a good example of productivity because it, it is only looking at like growth on growth, which is we cannot sustain. I think it was Donna Meadows who talks about systems, systems dynamics and like you, that there's limits of growth, right? Like um, meaning that the market is constantly looking to grow, right? And, and, it's, um, and it's constantly embedded in the market system, our values. So why is it that domestic workers and janitors and uh, um, non-unionized uh, farmers, you know, agriculture, why, why are those professions uh, valued less? why is it that managers are valued more than the people that work under them? Is that an assumption we want to adopt, you know, without question, or do we want to actually question it and say, um, what is the importance of different people's work and how do we um, actually lift up unseen and undervalued work in the marketplace? And how do we, typically it's women's work and people of color's work, black, indigenous, healing, um, uh, the different ways that we can come into the workplace, the different ways we have access to knowledge. In, uh, in our culture, the dominant uh, way of knowing something is this like logical scientific method, right? And there are lots of different ways of knowing and how do we actually um, 
uh, learn from each other and learn, uh, bring that to the best, you know, kind of to the fore to help the nonprofit organization um, become, um, to execute its mission. So you yeah. said before that it's not an either or, so it's not entirely throwing out the market-based construct, but it's looking at it and 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 um, saying, you know, there are there are definitely values embedded in this. It's not neutral. You know, yeah. I think the 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 rhetoric is that it is neutral. Yeah. Um, kind of like algorithms are are neutral. No, they're not. They're all <laughs> built know. by people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we have know biases. That so much. Yeah, yeah, and I I feel like the pandemic. I mean, with the you know, who were the essential workers? Well, the people who mm-hmm. are the paid the least, who are least valued. And I mo- my the, my most cynical self um, often thinks, my goodness, we value in terms of money the people who do the most harm in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Like the people yeah. who do good on a daily basis don't get paid much. And no. the people who are wrecking things uh, get paid a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. That's so true. Um, so it feels like as nonprofits, if any organization or any sector is going to change that um that those kinds of uh, default value systems, it's, it's the nonprofit sector or um, uh, benefit corps or you know, um, or, organizations with uh, a, more of a stakeholder approach rather than a shareholder approach. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the, you know, the, the, as you said at the beginning, Nonprofits, or well, any organization is constrained by budget, but particularly yeah. social justice nonprofits are constrained, and so they may have you know aspirations that um, they can't fully uh, live out uh, because of those those funding constraints and and uh, just the money that's coming in revenue. Um, what are some of the other critical? It's a hard co- job. Yeah, it's very hard, it's hard to balance job. it all. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, but I'm really appreciating that people are are um, taking a stab at it in a way that I don't think was true when I first started, where you know it was all about what was outside, what was the mission, and very little attention to what was inside the organization, and you know that disconnect between our our mission for creating this change, you know, empowering uh, women in the workplace. I literally worked at an organization whose mission was to empower women in the workplace and then would hire women in order to pay them as little as possible. So it's like this little bit of a disconnect. Yeah. (laughs) Just a little. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) If nothing else, we have to get the mission aligned pieces, uh, you know, we have to be able to accomplish them inside of our organizations if we have any expectation of accomplishing them outside. Yeah. If we can't do it internally in our organizations, you know, what um, what evidence can we bring to to say that this is possible? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what are some of the other um, critical conversations that organizations need to have? You talked about. Um, having a shared understanding of what it means to be an employee here and how mm-hmm. we're approaching work. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, what we call polarities mm-hmm. that are happening mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, an example is how oh, we had this great conversation about um, geolocation as a f- compensation factor. Do you adjust salary for where people live? Um and so there's two aspects. And like for some people, it's like, no, you don't adjust it because people, that's somebody's personal choice where they live. Um, and then for other folks, it's like, well, we can't hire people from these particular, we can't hire the best employee. They happen to be from San Francisco. So we need to pay them th- at the market level that San Francisco um, salaries are at, uh, compensation are, is at. Um, so those are kinds of questions, like where are the boundaries? Where are the, uh, and the, there's actually upsides to doing either one, right? Paying at the market level based on the geography or um, not paying. And there's also downsides for both. So how do we actually, as an organization, come to a kind of more 
collective understanding and perspective of where are those lines? Where do we cross the value line and start moving from where we're seeing the upsides of, of one direction and then we're going into the downsides because we've, we've overvalued it to the neglect of this other um, perspective. And um, that's, you know, polarity partnerships is a great resource for that. Barry Johnson is the one who created the um, polarity mapping and it's a, it's a great tool to have those conversations. Yeah. It, I, I, I love working with polarities because um, I feel like oftentimes so often people can really get caught up in the, in advocating for one side or the other. I mean, like a classic one is <clears throat> in the sector is the, um, we should be working at the systemic level. We've got to solve these big systemic issues. You know, just working one on one, you know, is not is not. Yes, you can help each person individually, but the system's still there. Well, it's not either or; it's both, right? We've got to be working at both levels. Maybe not everybody is working at both levels, um, but yeah, people definitely get caught up in those. Um, yes, we got to do it market. Yes, we got to do it geography, or no. But what are the what are the yeah, that, that method of looking at what are the um, values, what are the values in a different type of word, but what are the benefits of each side? Mm -hmm. And then what mm -hmm. are the pitfalls? And then yeah. trying to kind of maximize the benefit on both sides and, and be mindful of the pitfalls. But so often in cultures, you know, um, I think, you know, the classic one that people are talking about and you're talking about right in, in this model is the U.S. culture and yep. Western culture has tended to be so over indexed yep. on individualism that the relational piece is, is missing. And so yep. how do we and it's not that we completely go to mm -hmm. the other side. Nope. Um, yeah. It's that it's we how do we find, a you know, some kind of balance between the two, which is always the most challenging, finding well, that Goldilocks challenging. <laughs> <laughs> always the most challenging. Um, and one of the things that, uh, which comes back to the question of the, the process that we use, um, one of the last things we build out for uh, organizations is a calculator that actually allows people to do some what if scenarios. So um, we're encouraging people to pay people a thriving wage rather than just a minimum wage or a living wage. Um, uh, and so like, how do you, you actually test that with your budget? Uh, we give a calculator that where you can put, set your base number and set your different compensation factors, how much money you're giving to each factor. Um, and that allows based on the way that we are doing our system with the levels and stuff to um, try different form try different amounts to get within the uh, within the budget that you have. And if you can't, you know, hit a thriving wage for everyone, this, uh, you know, this go round, we're encouraging organizations not to lift the ceiling until they bring people up to a thriving wage. Because so can you, can you describe you know, um, what's the difference between a living wage and a thriving wage? Yeah. Um, I use the MIT, uh, living wage calculator uh, kind of as a base. There's other living calculate cost of living calculators, but the, uh, the MIT living wage calculator is an alternative to poverty wage, right? It's saying, you know, how much do you have to actually earn to live in this place? But they're only looking at the necessities. So if you're targeting your, if you're targeting your um, pay level to what, you know, one individual, uh, no children are at in the MIT calculator for a given geography, you're actually only getting them the, um, the bare necessities. And so if there's one car accident, one car, you know, car repair or um, some major medical uh, issue, that is going to put your employee in, a, in, a, in an avalanche, you know, of financial uh, um, strain. And uh, w thriving wage, we're uh, using, I think it comes from Elizabeth Warren, but there's a 50, 30, 20% um, budgeting rule. And the budgeting rule is 50% towards your necessities, 30% towards your dis uh, discretionary uh, needs, and then 20% towards savings and retirement. Mm. Well, if you know 
from the MIT living ca uh, wage calculator that, you know, some particular area, it's, you know, $16 to meet the necessities, you can plug that number into the the 50% and then figure out what the thriving wage looks like, at least a, a, around to get an approximate, to get us above water, to get all the employees working with some financial breathing space. Yeah, that's that's so huge because um, when I was a single mom and not making a lot of money, those, those one-time things that pretty much happened every third month, yeah. Um, oh my goodness. They, they threw such a curveball into everything, uh, every time. And so I actually have, a, an item in my purse, in our personal family budget that is one-time items. And so I've been tracking for years, how much that is over the, you know, how much you need to budget for those, those, those unexpected quote unquote things that you can completely expect to happen at an I unexpected time. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, there is a great uh, Hidden Brain episode on something like that around uh, the Money and You uh, episodes where they talk about like um, uh, budgeting for the, uh, not budgeting for the unexpected expenses, but then recognizing that actually that unexpected expenses happen every year or every, you know, You so just don't often. know when they're going to happen. You don't know when you they're going to happen. You don't know when the, yeah. the you know, the heater is going to break or the washing machine is going to break, but it's going to break at some point. Yeah. yeah. And also if you want your, uh, yeah. So there's the kind of expenditures that are like really critical for your daily operating, um, uh, operating, you know, just being able to operate in your life. Right. But there's also the, um, the, uh, money that you might need for relationship building. Like you want to buy your kids some books or uh, take them to the library or um, get a special gift for 16th birthday. Um, so that's why we're shooting for the kind of two times living wage as an estimate to get to, or 1.5 to 2 point um, the living wage as a thriving wage. Number. And that being your base wage, um, it uh, it doesn't have to be um, because usually there's uh, it's a little bit tricky. Okay, I, I'm not going to say it's a little bit not a hundred percent, but not a hundred percent. But the lowest wage in the organization should be above that, and assuming that everybody has responsibilities that get um, uh, tracked on the you know the differential part of the scale, then it would be a little bit more than base wage. Yeah. So you talked at one point about, and I'm, I'm imagining some kind of chart with, uh, this sounds like, you know, it can get really nitty gritty in terms of, you know, you have a zero, you have all these skills, competencies, but you 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 use a different word for those compensation factors, which was so yeah. beyond what is typical, right? Of yeah. what I just named all those different things um, named, and then defining a zero, one, two, three, four. I don't know how many, how high you go um, yeah. for for what the different levels are for those. And I would imagine that gets really granular, but at the same time could just be really eye-opening for folks to what it actually takes to do each job. Yeah, it is. Um, I would say that skills and competencies are actually part of, um, uh, sometimes organizations will lift it out specifically, but we don't embed it in. Okay. So I think one of the things in our system is like, they look at how many years of school do you need in order to get X job? And then that means you get more pay, right? Um, in this system, we don't make any assumptions. We let folks decide where they want to put value and why, and so that they come to, together with some reasoning. So it's um, it's so really, what might somebody put value to that? It very you, know, you much, wouldn't show we wouldn't show up in a typical kind of scenario or yeah, a typical compensation process. Yeah, I would say the majority of the compensation factors that we end up using for organizations are areas of responsibility. 
So it's like, where are people holding the work that the organization has to do in order to meet its mission? Um, and it's functional. It's not positional, right? Okay. So every position gets, gets scored on every single area of responsibility. Um, some of those areas of responsibility are, are functional areas, you know, it could be leadership, project management, supervision. It could be, uh, you know, fundraising, finance, program, communications, um, external relations. It could be the unseen, undervalued labor, like emotional labor, relational labor, um, uh, Jedi work. So the work that people are doing to increase uh, uh, equity and justice within the organization or externally apply it to the work, the programming work that they're doing. Um, so there's a lot of different categories that they could pick from. There's also um, uh, working conditions. So when you have to, some positions have to be on 24-7. Um, they have to be on call or there might be, um, there's a category sometimes we use call, uh, that's about level of vulnerability that you have in your work. So if you have to stay in the front desk and um, you have to stay seated the whole time, that can cause uh, physical harm to you, right? So you're vulnerable in that sense, or you might be exposed to blood if you are uh, work in a hospital or a health clinic and you're drawing blood from folks. Um, it, it could be a lot of, it could be that uh, your uh, community is being targeted uh, for, for violence and you are out there and you're the face of the organization. Um, so there's different things that can go into it. It is pretty super granular. So we don't encourage really small organizations to use it wholesale. Mm. Like we, we say draw from it what is most important. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, it's best tends to be best for organizations between 15 and 50 people. Uh, we have a couple of larger organizations that are interested in implementing it, and we're excited about figuring out how to do that well. Um, but ultimately, it's really about being much more transparent about what we're valuing and being able to um, uh, right-size the value of things that are overvalued in the market mm. and increase the value of things that are undervalued in the market. Yeah, yeah. So any things that help organizations be successful in this process? Yeah, um, we have a, a set of conditions that we call conditions for readiness. Um, I think the first thing is make sure your job descriptions are up to date because that <laughs> is really important. Um, and that can it, that can be a hurdle for a lot of organizations. It can be. It is. And yeah, yeah, you hit it right on the on the spot. Um, there, the uh, conditions for readiness cover. Um, uh, logistical conditions that are like job descriptions, making sure that you actually have fiscal health. Because if you're struggling for fundraising or uh, budgeting, this is not the time to, to, to work on equity in the compensation system in this way. Um, and then there are uh, um, socio, uh, so socio-psychological conditions, which is around um, you know, can you have a conversation around the grief and trauma about money, trauma of money? Um, there's growing research that the financial trauma that our ancestors and our um, uh, inter it can, can transfer intergenerationally. And um, so, and how we grew up affects how we're actually making decisions in the organization. And so we need to we need to separate that out, right? Like understand what is our personal trauma versus and our personal fear around money and how are we bringing that into the workplace? What is actually what good for the, for the organization? What is not good for the organization? Um, and then I'm forgetting the, the, the second, there's three sets and I'm forgetting this third set, but I can, um, I can uh, send you the, I think it's on our website. You can go. Uh, we'll, we'll put links to a yeah. lot of those things that you have in your, your signature so that people have all those resources that you make, awesome. that you ge very generously make available. Um, so on each episode, I like to close out by asking each guest, um, what permission slip would you give nonprofit leaders or what would you invite them to consider 
to avoid being a martyr to the cause and as they work to cultivate a healthier organizational culture. So either a permission slip or an invitation or both um, to nonprofit leaders. Um, Two things, I think. One is um, uh, understand your position with regard to risk and understand if you're risk averse or risk taking and um, understand what that impact is. Do you need to scale back a little bit on the risk taking? Do you need to um, increase your risk taking um, and understand where you are and what the organization needs based on its life cycle and stuff? Um, The second is um, not every law is equal. Mm. Um, and not the ramifications of, of, um, laws are not all equal. And so, um, sometimes we don't take risks because we're worried about, uh, uh, legal liability, but the legal liability is a probability. If this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. And if we do it in this way, this way, and this way. But if you're not doing it in this way, in this way, and it's not these, all these conditions don't meet, then you can actually take a risk that is not going to be as harmful to the organization. Now, as an HR professional, I can never tell someone to not follow the law. So I'm not saying break the law. What I'm saying is that some uh, laws have greater risks. So as an organizational leader, they can decide how they want to approach that risk in a different way. So I, I feel like for a lot of people, um, one, the fear of unknown on all those HR issues kind of hem- tends to mean that people are want to be more risk averse. And then, um, yeah, that fear of doing it wrong uh, will mean that, well, well, we can't change any of this because, you know, we're tied in by the law. But what you're saying is um, there is more flexibility there than they might think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so, um, I learned a lot and I'll be excited to uh, put all those links in so that people can access all those resources that you have on this really innovative model uh, that you're working with uh, to help organizations think differently about how they structure their compensation for their staff, which is just so fundamental. Yeah, Thank you, Carol, for the opportunity to talk to your audience and um, to have a conversation with you. It was uh, really nice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Mala, her full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I also included a whole host of resources that Mala offers around equitable compensation. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Charday Cabanel of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps other people find the podcast, and we appreciate it. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact. Oh,